Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Daddy Vlogger TV. We're here live on location in San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua, just on the verge of Easter. And uh, Easter here is a lot different from, the, from my hometown in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Over here, they have an entire week. It's called uh, Semana Santo, which means the Holy Week. And uh, it's quite an uh, interesting experience spending Easter over here. And as we're traveling, we actually love interviewing fellow dads, uh, fellow authors, fellow entrepreneurs, fellow world travelers. And I actually have one on the show today. Our guest today is a best-selling author of four children's books. He's just releasing his fourth one, actually. Uh, his name is Kevin uh, Christopher Fora. Uh, he's a dad, a little league coach, and, uh, of course, an author as well. Uh, so we're going to be finding out a little bit more about Kevin, uh, him as a father, uh, him as an author, and about his upcoming book, which is all about, um, you know, how to handle uh, your kids' questions about refugees and especially about uh, Syrian refugees. So super, super excited to have Kevin here on the show. He's joining us uh, live on location from just outside of New York City. Uh, Kevin, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for being on the show. So why don't we first get to know you a little bit better if you want to do a quick introduction and share a little bit more about your family and yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm a father of three. Um, I played baseball as a kid, but um, took a whole lot of years off until I had my own children and found the need to show up at the first day of practice and there's no coaches, no organization, and you know slowly just stepping up to the plate so to speak and saying let's get this going for the kids let's do it that's how it, how, how the books kind of got started um other stuff about me i grew up in a family business my father was a butcher um i went to college i graduated as a packaging engineer i worked for estee lauder and revlon doing lipsticks compacts makeup and then uh, my wife and I were close to deciding if we were going to start a family and when and how and commuting to New York City and wor working hard to make money to pay someone else to raise your children. And we kind of made a, a decision. It wasn't easy to move back to Woodstock, New York and take over the family business and let my father retire and then we would have the luxury of raising our own children with our own business so i i was working in a meat market i was taking my kids to baseball practice and i'd come home and go these kids know nothing they don't know which way to run they don't know what home plate is i want to write a book i want to write a book about what i do every day and I want to make it real. I want it to be with the voice of a child that, that just elaborates and shares his story to alleviate the fear of starting something new. Get, you know, getting kids to want to go outside and do something because they have confidence and, and they, they're learning as they go. Um, so that's how the Hometown All-Stars started. Sounds great. Sounds great, Kevin. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your uh, coaching uh, side of uh, what you do uh, before we get into the whole authorship side. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, what you feel uh, uh, you're benefiting in terms of uh, yourself, but also how you're impacting the kids as a coach. Uh, because I think a lot of parents are maybe wanting to be coaches, but they have a lot of fears and doubts, like, am I really a coach? Can I do it? Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit of your insights into your own coaching. Uh, how has it been like for you? It's a great question. Um, everybody should be able to help coach. It's, it's one of the things that I preach all the time. You cannot herd 13 cats and, and try to get them to all do the same thing and be in the right place. And the kids are no different. So you need more pairs of hands, of adult hands, to do safe, fun practices. So you stay up late at night, you search, you Google, you're looking for practice plans, you're talking to other coaches, you have ideas of ones you did before. The, the biggest thing about coaching is more child psychology than it is baseball skills. Yes, you want to teach them some baseball skills, but at the earlier ages with t-ball, you just really want them out there running around and want to come back again. Um, let them be with their friends, let them burn off some energy, let them go home and fall asleep. It's, it's a great little system. Sometimes it's the very first time that a child lets go of their mother's hand. 
and they run out to a crowd. They're four years old. They haven't been to school or preschool yet. They're they're right in that four to five age range. And, you know, sometimes it's, mom, come with me. Hold my hand all the way through it. And we go, yeah, let's do it. Let him hit, grab his hand, and run. Um, it's it, Coaching is very rewarding. It's one of those things that you could be the best baseball player ever and have no tolerance or patience for coaching a kid who, who can't already hit the ball. You're taking little children, four years, five, six, seven years old, that have, have never played a sport, they've never touched a baseball bat or a glove, um, and they've, they've tried to throw things in their life. And we're going to teach them how to do all of that and teach them a game of why are we getting outs at first base. You know, the, the little rules that go with the game, aren't you can't take them for granted. Um, so I think that circled around your question a little bit. But, but what I get out of that is – Three, four, five years later, as the kids get bigger and move up and age up, they still love baseball, and they're still coming back, and and they're with their friends. It, it's all friends. Awesome, awesome. awesome. Definitely great uh, bonding in terms of the friendship form, and uh, you know, like um, especially, of course, the relationship between coach and kid. I'd love to hear also the flip side. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of blessings and, uh, you know, joys in uh, coaching. What are also some of your struggles and your challenges and uh, difficult moments as a coach? <laughs> I think that I spent, uh, um, um, I'm going to estimate on the low side, 20 to 30 hours of discussing with another parent over a two-week period why bubble gum is good or bad for your child. <laughs> I brought bubble gum, a big bucket of bazooka, and gave it to the kids. They didn't even know what to do with it. It's, they're, they're four or five years old. Parents hide soda. They don't even know what soda is at that age because they, they're not exposed. So I'm like, here, put it in your mouth. Chew it. So if you've ever watched a child try to chew gum for the very first time in his life, they don't know what to do. And then they go, oh, wait, I can keep chewing. Some kids swallow it because they think it's just candy. Some kids keep chewing. I try to blow a bubble and excite them about what you can do with this gum. Um, but I, I had parents complain and say, we don't want our kid to have sugar or bubble gum. It's bad for them. And he called his dentist to call me. To, to tell me why you shouldn't have bubble gum. So I called my dentist and said, is there anything good in bubble gum? And he goes, yeah, it builds up your jaw muscles and, and, and your teeth structure. Um, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world. The, the, actually, the biggest risk is if they're chewing gum and they're running and they choke on it. That would be a bad thing. So I addressed the problem. We, we said, you're welcome to start another team if you want to get a group bunch of kids and not give them bubble gum. Um, but we'll have bubble gum after the game when they're not running around where they can choke on it. It's, it's just part of baseball. So we, we've had a few different scenarios. One of them when I was president of Little League, um, there was a child that received many warnings and he couldn't contain himself and he couldn't keep his language in check or his respect factor for the umpires or the coaches. And, and he just thought he was as big as the world. And, and it took eight of us in a room to sit there and say, this is his final chance. Like he's had three warnings. We're going to allow one kid to scare the other 300 kids. You know, you don't want to give up on anybody. That's really hard. This is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. My my player agent for the league was unable to make the phone call. So it fell on me as the president that it had to get done. So I called the mother and said, we're kicking your kid out of baseball. And, and it was horrible because 
That's the last thing. Baseball's supposed to take kids and make them better. But we had to do it. You know, it was one of those unfortunate situations. Well, Kevin, thank you for sharing uh, those uh, two very important and very powerful examples. Uh, you know, you don't usually hear these kind of examples when you hear of coaching. Uh, so you've transitioned, or not transitioned, you've uh, added uh, to your repertoire from being uh, just a coach, so to speak, but also now a best-selling author with uh, having three books already and one uh, about to be published. So uh, walk us through uh, what made you actually decide to write about these experiences as a coach and uh, turn it into children's books. Well, at the time, um, I had a, I, with three children, my youngest, I'm reading books at bed, and, and part of my inspiration was Maisie Mouse. Maisie Mouse, I think they're produced in England, and they're wonderful. They're short books. You turn the pages, great images, short words, and my son, who's four, is repeating the words on the page. I would turn the page, and... Maisie cleans the window from the inside and we go to turn the page and he's already saying before I turn the page and Cyril cleans them from the outside and and I'm going did you read that he said no I just memorized that so he couldn't read the words but he knew exactly what it said from reading at bedtime and I said if I could write a book like Maisie Mouse about baseball they would learn which way to run to first when they hit the ball because they seen it. They learned it. They see the other kids doing it. Which way do you run around the bases to first, to second, to third, and home? And then when they go out in the backyard, they know which way they want to run. So I, I, had, to, I had to help more kids than in my own backyard. I felt like, okay, my Little League is 300 kids strong what about the next town over or the next state over or across america and knowing what a global sport baseball is around the world china japan their little league teams are always in the finals um Kiraco, um germany everywhere all these kids are sitting on their computers doing do 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 they don't even look up around them anymore they, they, they get lost on the road because they don't even watch where their parents drive anymore. And, and I said, I can help more kids than just the ones in my small town area. So I wanted to write a book. I wanted to get it across the country. I wanted to get opinions of people in Texas and California and Chicago and Idaho. And I wanted to get my book in their hands and say, what do you think? Tell me what you think. And I got some great input. I got some some things I moved around, some librarians and, and early education teachers that said this would be good, that's good. And this book came out of getting opinions from across the country on, yeah, we love it. Do you know the kids in Montana have the same problems as the kids in New York? They're all on their phone and their computers. The kids in Florida are the same. You know, we, sometimes we live in this micro bubble around our house and we don't get to see other parts of the world. Um, you know, even stretching across the world. I think the kids in China and Japan are even more addicted to their little electronic games. Um, it, it's a tough balance. It's a very tough balance because the kids need to learn how to use the computers for their future employment. They're, they're going to grow up, and if you don't know how to use a mouse or a, a slide or your finger or stretching, bigger, smaller, and, and you're not going to be able to even go to work. Um, so you also need a healthier world where they get exercise and they have activities and they learn how to use their muscles and have a, a healthy body. So between that, there's a fine line of like a walk in the tightrope across there and trying to balance outside, more green, computers, less green, a little bit of uh, trying to pull it together. Awesome, awesome. So uh, tell us about the journey in terms of writing these uh, soon to be four books. Uh, 
what year did you start the books? And uh, walk us through the actual books, the, the titles, and a little bit about the content of each one, please. Sure. Um, the books have probably been initiated uh, 2009. So we're at 10, 11 years as far as overall development idea to take my stick figures that I draw and the words in the story and turn it over to an illustrator and have him turn it into life and, and give me nine or 10 characters and faces and names and putting it together and go, all right, now let's put it, my book that's all stick figures and turn it into real art and then we can show it to people. And, and that's how we, we started. Um, we, we made some, some fun marketing ideas. We thought about where we could go with this. Who did we know? Um, you know, working in a small town in Woodstock, it's, it's a small little town but it's kind of globally very well known. You know, you could, you could stand on the street in, in Japan, somewhere in Japan, for, or Nicaragua, and you can say, do you know where Houston is? Just picking one out of the hat. Or, or Seattle. And they'd be like, no. And they'd say, you ever heard here of Woodstock? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... They, they've all heard of it. They may not know where it is, but they've heard the name. So that, that kind of uh, attracts a whole lot of artists. It attracts celebrities. It, it's just a great destination, beautiful little place tucked into the mountains. So we knew people at the publishing houses. We knew some people along the road, all of which you can't say they weren't any help because without them, I wouldn't have gotten to the next step to meet the next person. So I wouldn't explicitly say that, oh, the girl that lives down the road made a call and got me in. You know, it doesn't work like that. Every night, I'd come home at seven o'clock at night, I'd eat dinner, I'd put the kids to bed, I'd come down and I'd sit at my dining room table with everything all spread out in front of me. And here I go, I'm writing, I'm writing to people, I'm working on LinkedIn, I'm working on Facebook, I'm working on Instagram. I'm trying to talk to people, I'm trying to say, here's a free link, go look at my book, tell me what you think, look at it. So we started out with Nick's very first day of baseball. And ultimately, you can't show up at your first day of baseball, hit a home run, win the game, when you don't know which way to run or how to do anything. So too many books, out there are not age appropriate. I've done my homework. I've looked at over 500 baseball books for kids. I made photocopies of the covers. I keep in a folder. When people want to talk about them, I pull them out. I'm like, which one do you want to talk about? And I really felt the need to keep it real and, and to keep it true to the sport, but keep it at a kid level with a kid voice. So Nick, Nick signing up for baseball. He's dreaming about baseballs everywhere he goes. He's in the car window and he sees an apple orchard and every apple's a little baseball on the trees and the bicycle tire looks like a big baseball. It's just a cute picture. Nick has baseball on his brain and we show pictures of his brain with that squiggly maze and we put in like ice cream and a baseball and a bat on his brain for some fun pictures. Um, his mom signs him up. He has to know if he's lefty or righty, how tall is he, Just a little, little bit of that fun stuff to build up to, oh, I'm nervous. I'm going to bed and practice is tomorrow, the first practice. And he shows up being scared and all and finds out all his friends are there. It alleviates all the fear of starting something new when you show up and there's a whole bunch of people you know. And it's great. It's a small town. That's what that's what youth sports typically do. They they just bring children together outside of the school classroom. So Nick's very first day is exactly what happens. You show up. You find out your friends are there. You have a blast. You run around the bases. You do some jumping jacks. You learn some basic exercises. You learn about what it is to be a team, and then you get an ice cream and you go home. And you want to come back for more, you know. It, it could 
that's usually about all the time that you have. In reality, daylight savings time, it's getting dark, it's co a little cold in the spring, so it's really nice because you have to make it good for the parents in order for them to bring their kids. Like, oh, I love going to baseball. It's great. It's well run. It's organized. Mm -hmm. So Nick's very first day had to start right where we did. Show up, get your uniform. You get a number on the back. You learn what your number means. Then as I'm presenting this around the country, they're like, ah, it's really simple. It's very baby basic. It's not a lot of baseball. It's not. And I'm going, you only have 32 pages to work with. How do you tell a story and how do you teach baseball at the same time in 32 pages? It's really, really hard to squeeze in and to keep the words really short without having huge paragraphs. So I said, geez, we didn't get into real baseball yet. We need to write the next book, Magic Bat Day. This is the coolest thing. I haven't told anybody on any interview yet. So you're getting this exclusive. My great, great, great grandfather, three greats grandfather, used to play baseball in 1890, back when they were inventing the game. And he had an ivory baseball bat. It was big and heavy, and it was wrapped with wood on the outside over top of the ivory. And at this point in the world, they were experimenting on what the game's going to be. What can you use? What are the rules? So there were no rules on bats. You could use anything you wanted. Everybody trying to do something better. So my cousin in Michigan has this bat that's recognized by Cooperstown. He has a trophy, a championship trophy from the 1800s and a couple balls. And I, I put that dedication in my magic bat day because it's not the bat that you pick. It's you. Everybody will find their magic bat. It doesn't have to be the same one as somebody else's. So magic bat day is the best practice of all. Everybody loves to hit balls. That's You see baseball, you want to hit a ball. Playing catch, doing grounders, um, all those other things kind of pale in comparison to their favorite. Let's go hit the ball. Yeah. You, you get gear, you get a helmet, you get the bats, mm -hmm. you figure out how to stand. Whack, whack, whack. Hitting lots of balls. So I wanted to make the second book, Magic Bat Day, and teach kids how to bat how arithmetic in class when they see the teacher writing two plus one equals what? You know, and, and the kids are envisioning a scoreboard now and they're counting runs, so they do math a little bit easier. Then we went to TGIT. We learned how to bat. Now we need to learn how to throw. You can't play a game until you can bat, run, throw, and catch. Otherwise, you can't put it together. So TGIT was all about looking like the letter T, holding the ball, pointing your glove at your target, and rocking back and rocking forward like a windmill and throwing the ball. It gets every kid on target. It gets all their arms in the proper places. It has the best education in there on how to teach a small kid. And I got phone calls and answering machine messages from people going, it's seven o'clock at night, my kids in their pajamas, we're going to bed and we're reading your book. And now they want to run outside in their socks and throw baseballs because you just showed them how to do it in the book. I'm like, that's great. It's inspiring these kids to get outside. And it's teaching the parents because not every parent knows how to play baseball. And with America being a large melting pot or the world being a large melting pot, Different nationalities have different sports and you have children and they're bringing them to me to teach their kid how to play baseball because they don't know how. And, and, and that's what my wife kind of summarized. She said, why are they bringing them to you? They're bringing them to me because they don't know how to teach them how to play baseball. So the frustration of kids not knowing which way to run or what home plate is, isn't really frustration. So we've learned how to bat, TGIT, thank God it's T-ball day. And this book now, Amira Can Catch. Right. Uh, it's the culmination of the four skills that we need to play a game and have fun. This is like 
this is going to be the rocket out of the publishing industry because uh, after after this we can do anything we can have memorial day parade we can have nolan ryan day we, we can do pizza pie day we, we've got so many titles in a line that we want to do for these books to to live in the eyes of a child through a youth baseball season it's great and then they can read these then they can go out and play and they have confidence and, and they learn teamwork. Um, they, they self-esteem, all these things that they don't even know they're learning. It's just happening because we're playing baseball. And the most important of all those is to have fun because if it's too much like work, too much yelling, you can't just stand there and yell. You gotta be kind to the kids. You gotta know your audience. It goes back to that best baseball player may be really good, but he doesn't know how to teach kids because it takes a little more child psychology 101 to understand that me and the other coach know we're not competing against each other. We're trying to help all the kids. That's the most important thing. For a volunteer, a parent, mom, dad stepping up, you have to understand that you're not out there just to coach your own kid. You're out there for all the kids. So... That's kind of uh, the spirit behind it all. Awesome. Thank you so much for elaborating uh, the journey. And thanks for that little exclusive as well. Uh, good to yeah. know that we were the first to hear that little anecdote. Uh, so with this new book, obviously, uh, one of the big focuses here is on the Syrian refugee crisis. And of course, uh, there are a lot of immigrants and refugees coming into uh, the Western world, uh, to places like Germany and the US and Canada and beyond. Uh, so tell us a little bit about why you uh, particularly decided to uh, focus on that current crisis and uh, why you decided to put that into book form in the form of a children's book. Yeah, um, I, I preach a couple things. Real life, real baseball. We're not here to babysit and let your kids run around. We're here to teach them how to play baseball. And it's somewhat serious, but fun. Uh, real life is knowing what's going on in the world around you. When, when we have a Memorial Day parade, do they know why they're in the parade? Do they know why it's somber? And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's about Team USA and being part of your country and, and recognizing what, what it all has to do. A year ago, or a little more when we started this book, we knew that probably wasn't as bad as it is now, but we knew this was a major crisis in the world. And we said, how do you explain this to kids? We're teaching real baseball. We should teach some real world in this story. I deviated from the industry standard of 32 pages and I went to 40 pages. And some people frown upon that once you get into the real business world of it all. But I said, I wanna do it. I wanna do it right. I need more pages. I used slightly a few more words because it's a story that needed to be told. When I graduated college, I had a roommate from Syria. He had a community of friends and a couple other people that we worked with from Syria. I heard about Syria for the last 20 years. What a beautiful place, what great things. I can't wait to go home and visit my family and come back. Um, or their, their family was coming here to visit and go back. And everything that I've heard, it was all normal. It's normal just like you, just like me. It doesn't matter what town or city we're in. It's, it's the same. And when, when I saw the bombs in the streets, I'm thinking of my friends that I grew up with for the last 20, 30 years. And, and I sit there and say, man, they have relatives there. They have family there. I'm like, I wonder if everybody's okay. And, and the pictures and you see the kids and uh, it's just a really sad scene. So I was sitting on all this going through my brain and I'm like, how can we tell this story? How can we tell this story? And it's like, I believe things happen for a reason. I turn the page. And here's an article from NPR with a picture in Greece. The Olympic Stadium in Greece was nothing but refugee camps. 
filled with tents across the whole entire inside of the baseball field. And that's where they're living. That was one place made for, for a home. And these people and the kids probably knew very little. You think this has been going on for seven, eight, nine years now? Think about that seven or eight-year-old that doesn't even know anything else in life because they grew up without a home. They grew up moving from country to country and walking in tents. All those kids at that age really have no idea what's going on. And our kids, to not even know that's happening, I say our kids, um, you know, it's how about the whole rest of the world that might choose to not tell their kids about it because they think they're too young, you know, to appreciate what they have. It's another one of those life lessons to, to know what's going on and, and to, to share with them through the eyes of a child. That, that was the goal. Awesome, awesome. And definitely I'm guilty as charged here, even though we're traveling the world and showing them a lot about cultures and uh, history. And uh, I haven't actually uh, explained to my kids, my kids are five, four, and one. I haven't explained uh, much about the Syrian uh, crisis. I think we watched one video and uh, that was about it. So, so you've actually uh, put the challenge out to me that I'm going to actually start educating them uh, much more. And uh, I think I'll do it uh, to start off with your book. I think that'll be a good starting point. That'd be great. So, uh, uh, Kevin, I have a question too about uh, you know this whole journey uh, to becoming a children's book author. Uh, tell us about uh, if uh, others like myself, uh, for example, in my case, I really want to write this uh, children's book where it's going to be about uh, the importance of family travel. Uh, and teaching the kids why it's so important. So tell us, uh, maybe someone like me, if, if I want to write a book, uh, where should I start? <laughs> this is perfect. You should start by asking me that question. I, I, give a, I give a lecture in a seminar, and it says, so you want to write a book? Everybody has a book in their head, but they don't know how to get it out. They don't know where to, where to go with it. And, and the right. biggest question is, why? What, what is your motive to wanting to write this book? Yeah, you're flipping the question around on me. Well, I've actually written a book already, by the way. It's uh, about fatherhood. Uh, so I, I did accomplish the speed of writing a book, which is obviously the hardest thing, but it wasn't a children's book. That was geared towards the dads. So now I'm writing this book geared towards the kids. And uh, why is the motivation? Obviously, now we're traveling around the world, uh, you know, uh, for the last uh, 15 months, and our kids have been to like 27 countries. So I've seen firsthand uh, how my kids have been impacted and uh, the incredible blessings that travel has brought to their education. And now my goal is like, okay, uh, since it impacted our kids so profoundly, I got to inspire other moms and dads and other kids to travel as well. So it seems to be the next logical step uh, to write this book to inspire others to travel like we have. I, uh, I love that idea. I think it's very valuable for other kids that haven't had the luxury of traveling like you are to share with them my, my advice that I ask everybody why they want to write it because some people just have to tell their story or they think it's unique or they, they do they want to write it to say, I wrote a book. Do they want to write a book because they want to get rich? Do they write a book because they, they it's, no one else is doing it. You're, you're the specialist in your field. And, and the question is, why you? Why are you the person that's qualified to write this book? And, and you have your answer because you're living it. You're giving it the real life experience. You're not just reading a book about somebody that's traveling you're, and then rewriting it for kids. So, so you, have, you have this vast amount of information that you can turn into some beautiful images and and the story that goes with it. It sounds like five books. It sounds like 10 books to, yeah, keep them, to keep them short, to keep them fun. You don't have to put every country you've been in into one book. You'll be out of pages. So take, take a location of your favorites and start out and turn it into a series. And, and you'll have, where do you want to go tonight for bedtime? I want to go to Czechoslovakia. I want to go to Australia. I want to go to Nicaragua. Uh, they'll be buying your books for the experience around the world. 
I, I think that that the advice that I give anybody is decide up front if you're going to dedicate every night to try and make your book famous, if you're going to pursue your dreams, if you want to get an agent, a publisher, or if you just want to make 50 books to give to your friends, you can publish it, you can print them, and you're done. And you don't have to give up your whole life. I'm 10 or 12 years deep into this, three, four years that I actually released the books. But the first six years was a whole lot of development to get to the release of the first book. You know, and, and if you're going to be working on your book every night, I'm guilty. I sacrifice my family because I'm working on the books. I could have been playing Monopoly. I could have been outside shooting a couple hoops with my kids. Um, but I sat on the computer and work, work, work because I really want to make this book something for the whole world. So each person has a different reason to why they want to write a book. And basically through my seminar, I go through a bunch of examples with people in the audience, much like yourself. For you to decide, do you want to write this book? You sure? Are you sure about it? <laughs> So, and, and then and then to do it, but, but to have that checkpoint up front in your head to know this is what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely, freaking lutely, as they say, right? Uh, definitely, I want to write this book because I, I, I saw with my first book just the impact it had on me, firstly, as a writer, because I'm processing what it means to be dad and I was writing it all down, and that whole process, even if no one ever bought the book, would it be worth it? Uh, but the fact that obviously I had uh, you know several uh, hundred copies sold, uh, I didn't become uh, you know internationally famous through the book alone. Uh, but uh, definitely the book helped in terms of uh, I wouldn't say monetization necessarily, but building the whole you know my Daddy Blogger brand that helped a lot, uh, getting media interviews, getting speaking engagements. Uh, yeah, and ultimately it's about I think uh, at the end of the day it's not about money for me; it's about inspiring others. So uh, of course it'd be great to uh, make uh, extra cash through it, but uh, definitely. This ability, like even if one person reads my book and they're like, okay, you know, you inspired me to travel more and to be a better dad, it would be all worth it. So uh, I have a couple of kind of closing questions here. So uh, maybe you could talk about the logistics. Uh, so you talked about the why of writing a book. You talked about, uh, you know, kind of figuring out, is it really important to you? Uh, do you want to really do it in terms of the sacrifices? Walk us through the logistics. Like, like uh, you mentioned like a publisher uh, versus like, uh, you know, self-publishing. Walk us through uh, maybe the differences there and which one you've chosen and why. Sure. Um, the ultimate goal is to write your book with all words, no pictures, no anything, and mail it to an agent. This is the ideal world, okay? You mail, you mail your manuscript yes. to agents, but you have to find agents. Where do you find agents? There's a book and websites and nighttime reading and everything that you focus your energy onto the right agent. Because if this guy sells romance novels for 25-year-old women, he's not going to help you with your book. So you need to study research. They lovingly in the industry call it stalking. You should stalk all these <laughs> other people that you think are potential agents that could represent you. They act to screen out hundreds of people and get one good one out of a hundred. They have an open door to walk into a publisher and say, hey, I think I found a good one. So the ideal world is you write everything on paper, words only, you, you get an agent and the agent takes it to the publisher like Scholastic and they call you up and say, we want you here tomorrow for a meeting, we wanna make you an offer. That's it, you're done. They take your manuscript, they give it to one of their illustrators, and then you have a finished book. That's like from zero to finish in the most ideal way. Now that curvy road and all the people you meet and all the things you do along the way, how do you attract an agent? Can you go directly to the publisher? There's bigger publishers, there's smaller publishers, there's niche publishers, there's international ones. There, there's audio ones, there's braille ones. You, you need to, to find these little ways to get a sample of your book out. You can, you can email it, 
You can send it to people. You, begging people to follow through. Oh, yeah, I'll write you a review. I'll write you a review. And they, they're gone. And they never wrote you a review. But they were very nice to your face because they couldn't say no. So you walk away from some of your meetings like, oh, this is great. They really liked it. They're going to go home and put it on Goodreads or, or Amazon or something. And then all these other people will see all these great reviews and it'll build up your value. And people love this book. Scholastic's going to look at you and say, if we do this project together, it's a business. How many books can you sell on your own? And when you come out with the second book, how many can you sell? It's a business. It costs X amount of money for them to produce a book from the point that they interview somebody, they read the manuscripts, there's an editor that gets in in the middle that refines some of your wording that you can take or leave, um, but they're giving you their best advice because they work in the industry. And then you get to an agent and you get to a publisher and the publisher prints them and sends them to all the stores and sells them to everybody. Um, the, the Also a distributor, same thing. The publisher uses a distributor like Ingram, Baker and Taylor, um, Midpoint. They're some of the people that have sales agents that go to libraries and say, look, we got some new great books. You should buy these and your books in that little collection. Um, if you self-publish, you're starting out right under the gun by saying, how many can I sell? Now when you go to a publisher for real, you can say, I self-published this first because I wanted some books to hold and to ask opinions and to, to have other people seek out you know, solutions or likes or dislikes so you can fix it. And they, uh, you, you self-publish it, you make the samples, the, the publisher, Scholastic, will now say, oh, this is great. How many have you sold? Did you sell, <laughs> did, did you sell 10? <laughs> you, you gave 100 of them away. How, how many, <laughs> you weren't even trying to sell them. You were trying to to get feedback from everybody to build how good your book really is. So now they're going to say, well, if you can only sell 10 books, why should I publish it? It must not be good enough. So the minute you self-publish, you, you put your name in the game and your reputation, and, and you're going full speed ahead because you published your book. Self-publishing is publishing. And... You can't just expect it to be found on Amazon by somebody typing in children's book, right? How are they going to find your book? So those steps, they don't get intertangled at all, but it's a different path with more work. And, and you have to go back to the beginning to say, why am I writing this book? Why are you going to write that book? Are you willing to go through this process? Are you willing to stay up late at night, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, so you can reply to all the emails? The more, the more you send out, the more that come back. So you're creating your own workload. And it's a lot of work being an author. And, and you don't always see the return. And if you go back to why am I writing that book, is because I want to help kids or you want to teach kids some international experiences. There's your, there's your missionary work. The people that you'll meet along the way, they always say it's not the book. It's right. I met the head of publishers weekly. There's, there's two things you need in the world to succeed. You need a review from publishers weekly and you need a review from school library journal. If you don't have one or the other and you go to the New York public library system, right in New York City, the famous New York public library, and say, would you put my book on your shelf? They'd be like, do you have a PW or SLJ review? No. Then no. They, the, the review houses act as the screening process for all these librarians and teachers that are busy. They just shop off of their lists 
So you got to meet these people. How do you meet them? How do you get into their world? How do you break into the literary world? You're asking all these million dollar questions, Kevin. I love it. I love it. And I know we could go on here for hours on end because it's such a fascinating topic. But uh, I have uh, one final question about, uh, you know, children's book writing, because I think a lot of uh, our listeners of yours who want to do something similar would have the similar question about the graphics, the illustration, the design. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, you can do it through a publisher and they'll handle that side of things for you, the illustration. But uh, if you do a self-publish, any hints or tips there in terms of uh, what makes good art or how, uh, you know, like, Walk us through the whole, uh, it's a different ballgame with an adult book and a children's book when it comes to the graphics, illustration, design. Walk okay. us through that part. Absolutely. Um, I, it depends on your book. If you're giving a, a how-to book and you need to show specific illustrations, arm this way, hand that way, you, you need to teach through the pictures, then I think you should pursue your own artwork and you should use that all you need to do is a couple of three pages and put it with your manuscript and submit it to agents and to publishers because think about scholastic is their own business their own company they're giving you some money and they're going to make money for launching your book they have their editors they have their marketing group they have their pr group they have their publishing group. It's like a stable of horses, right? They're really good artists. They're proven. They've been there a long time. And when they get a new book, they want to give it to one of them so they can make money. They try to keep it in the family. It's kind of like you shopping in your own little town where you live. You go to this grocery store. You go to this hardware store. You go here. It's hard to break out. If somebody said, hey, go, go buy me a light bulb. You're going to go to the store that you always go to because they treat you right. That scholastic group is going to their illustrators that they've always gone to that's proven and good. It's, it's that relationship thing. So to break into that is really hard unless you're unique. So if you come up with these words that are so beautiful, you, you don't need to paint the picture. Let them paint the picture. Give them a beautiful manuscript, unless you have something specific. If you, if you need something specific to, to teach something, do a couple hand illustrations, but don't do the whole book. If you let them pretend they're helping to make your book, that, that old adage, you know, make them feel like it's their idea. It doesn't matter if you just want to get your book out. I don't, I don't care if my name's even on the book. I just want to help more kids, and I don't care how I get there. Some people, if, if you're an illustrator, you could write a book and illustrate it. it it's got to be aces on your first shot. Otherwise, they're not going to say, oh, we like the words, but we want this guy to illustrate it. Um, it's tricky. It's tricky, but, but for the, the time and the money and the energy, you want to submit a manuscript that if if you sat in front of 20 editors from different companies and you said give me your best advice for publishing a children's book the answer is write and write well that's it everything else doesn't matter if you write well your book will get picked out of the crowd and it'll go as far as can be. So it's hard to say. You, you, you write the book, you read it. Even when, you, when you're writing and reading, the words are already in your head, whether they're on paper or not. And you're like, oh, no, wait, that doesn't make sense. Read it out loud. Because when you read it out loud, you find all your stumbling blocks. It may look good in grammar, but it's not really how you talk or how you would read the book. So give it to someone else to read out loud. And they don't have all the words in their head already. They don't know what's happening on the next page already. And, and that helps work with your editing process and writing well. So write and write well. 
Well said, well said, my friend. And it's been a joy and a pleasure to uh, get all of your insights into so many different areas here today. Uh, we covered uh, coaching, we covered your uh, series, we covered the whole Syrian refugee crisis, and now we've concluded with all these tips and advice and insights into uh, publishing a book. Uh, so, Kevin, uh, you obviously have your website, uh, places that they can buy the book, you have your writing workshops. Uh, tell us, walk us through some of those ways so people can uh, purchase your books, attend your workshops, and more. I lost the tail end of that. I'm sorry. Oh, how can people connect with you to get your uh, books, uh, to also uh, attend your workshops, etc.? Sure. Uh, our website is www.thehometownallstars.com, uh, just like it sounds. Um, my email is kevin at the hometown all stars. Um, I think that's it. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube. Uh, we have incredible videos on YouTube. TGIT, how to throw. Go to YouTube and you're going to see TGIT in action, real life. Magic Bat Day, you're going to see it real life with real kids. Um, it's kind of that proof in the pudding. I've given myself goosebumps here. Um, it's the proof in the pudding to, to show everybody. So all the standard Internet locations. Well, I'll have all the standard Internet locations and links below, including uh, Kevin's website. Uh, make sure you uh, grab a copy of his brand new book all about the Syrian refugee crisis, told in a very obviously uh, fun and creative way uh, through the power of a uh, baseball analogy. Uh, so make sure you uh, grab a copy of uh, that book and also the three previous ones. And as Kevin has uh, alluded to, uh, he does workshops and he's very insightful into this whole area of uh, terms for publishing. For many years of experience and expertise. So Kevin has uh, definitely enjoyed a pleasure to connect with you today, my friend, and uh, we'll keep up. We'll keep in touch. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, uh, for tuning into this episode. I'll have those links below. Uh, make sure you follow Kevin. Make sure you follow myself at uh, teddyblogger.com. And we'll catch up with you guys in the next episode. Happy travels.